want to welcome visitors. If there's any non-Catholics here, just a, a just a real quick note. Um, since we're in the house of God in the gate of heaven, we have Christ enthroned on the altar here. It's uh, we see clearly it's the throne room of the mighty King, and so we want to preserve a, a reverent silence as long as we're in, in, in present in the church. Free to talk outside, but in the church we have to have a, a reverent silence. Ave Maria Prisima, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. In her last public interview, Sister Lucia told Father Augustin Fuentes, who was the vice postulator at the time for the causes of Blessed Francisco and Jacinta, quote, Father, the Most Holy Virgin is very sad because no one has paid any attention to her message, neither the good nor the bad. The good continue on their way, but without giving any importance to her message. The bad, not seeing the punishment of God actually falling upon them, continue their life of sin without caring about the message. But believe me, Father, God will chastise the world, and this will be in a terrible manner. Close quote. The Most Holy Virgin is very sad because no one has paid any attention to her message, neither the good nor the bad. Now, yesterday we considered the miracle of a son as a historical fact and as the fulfillment of a prophecy. We saw there are accounts published before the miracle happened mocking the predictions, that their testimonies written taped and filmed from massive numbers of some 70,000 witnesses, many of whom were not believers. There are photographs of the crowd viewing the miracle. We saw there were distant witnesses who could not possibly be accused of being under the influence of some sort of group hypnosis or suggestion. And we saw that besides the precise fulfillment of this prophecy, which in itself can only be an act of God, the miracle of the Son is itself far outside the course of nature, and therefore it can only be explained as a direct act of God himself. We considered the miracle in itself as an apocalyptic sign and as an unmistakable confirmation that Our Lady had been speaking to the children. We concluded that because God never acts without a purpose, then we perform a miracle of unprecedented proportions. It's a sign pointing towards a message which is of itself of unprecedented importance. And the apocalyptic overtones of the miracle itself point towards apocalyptic overtones in the message. So now let's turn to the message. Our Lady's message in July is indeed the heart of the fat of a message. And I'll quote from Sister Lucia's memoirs. July 13, 1917. Quote, A few moments... After arriving at Covid area near the home oak, where a large number of people were praying the rosary, we saw the flash of light once more, and a moment later, Our Lady appeared on the home oak. So parenthetically, I'll insert a, a Sister Lucia's description of Our Lady from the May apparition, so we get an idea what they were seeing. There before us on a small home oak, we beheld a lady all dressed in white. She was more brilliant than the sun, and radiated light more clear and intense than a crystal glass filled with sparkling water when the rays of the burning sun shine through it. We were so close, just a few feet from her, that we were bathed in the light which surrounded her, or rather which radiated from her. We returned to the July. What does your grace want of me? I asked. 
I want you to come here on the 13th of next month to continue to pray the rosary every day in honor of Our Lady of the Rosary in order to obtain peace for the world and the end of the war because only she can help you. I would like you to, to ask you to tell us who you are and to work a miracle so that everybody will believe you are appearing to us. Continue to come here every month. In October, I will tell you who I am and what I want, and I will perform a miracle for all to see and believe. I then made some requests, but I cannot recall just now what they were. What I do remember is that Our Lady said it was necessary for such people to pray the rosary in order to obtain these graces during the year. And she continued, Sacrifice yourself for sinners and say many times, especially when you make some sacrifice, O Jesus, it is for love of you, for the conversion of sinners, and in reparation for the sins committed against the Immaculate Heart of Mary. As Our Lady spoke these last words, she opened her hands once more, as she had done during the two previous months. The rays of light seemed to penetrate the earth, and we saw, as it were, a sea of fire. Plunged in this fire were demons and souls in human form, like transparent burning embers, all blackened or burnished bronze, floating about in the conflagration, now raised into the air by the flames that issued from within themselves, together with great clouds of smoke, now falling back on every side like sparks and huge fires, without weight or equilibrium, amid shrieks and groans of pain and despair, which horrified us and made us tremble with fear. It must have been this sight which caused me to cry out as people say they heard me. The demons could be distinguished by their terrifying repellent likeness to frightful and unknown animals, black and transparent like burning coals. Terrified, and as if to plead for succor, we looked up at Our Lady who said to us, so kindly and so sadly, you have seen hell where the souls of poor sinners go. To save them, God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart. If what I say to you is done, many souls will be saved and there will be peace. The war is going to end, but if people do not cease offending God, a worse one will break out during the pontificate of Pius XI. When you see a night illuminated by an unknown light, know that this is the great sign given to you by God that he is about to punish the world for its crimes by means of wars, famine, persecutions of the church, and the Holy Father. To prevent this, I shall come to ask for the consecration of Russia to my Immaculate Heart and the communion of reparation on the first Saturdays. If my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. The good will be martyred. The Holy Father will have much to suffer. Various nations will be annihilated. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. The Holy Father will consecrate Russia to me, and she will be converted, and a period of peace will be granted to the world. In Portugal, the dogma of the faith will always be preserved, etc. Sister Lucida actually wrote, etc. Back to Our Lady. Do not tell this to anybody. Francisco, yes, you may tell him. Now that's important to note, just parenthetically. Lucia was the only one of the three children who spoke to Our Lady during the apparitions. Blessed Jacinta could both see and hear Our Lady, but never spoke to her. Francisco could see the Blessed Virgin perfectly, but he never heard a word from her. He couldn't hear her. Back to Our Lady. 
When you pray the rosary, say after each mystery, O my Jesus, forgive us, save us from the fire of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those who are most in need. After this, there was a moment of silence, and then I asked, Is there anything more you want of me? No, I do not want anything more of you today. Then as before, our lady began to ascend toward the east until she finally disappeared in the immense distance of the firmament. Close quote, Sister Lucia. Now this is the heart of the message of Fatima. The previous apparitions were preparing for it, and the miracles associated with the following three apparitions, most notably, of course, the miracle of the sun, which we considered yesterday, were confirmations of this message. There are three parts to the message. They're all interlinked and interdependent. They treat of individuals, nations, and the church. We'll spend the remaining conferences unpacking various aspects of the message. Tonight, we'll consider the first part, the vision of hell, which pertains to the salvation of individuals. Hell. The first thing, the very first thing that Our Lady shows the children, and these are little children, is this absolutely terrifying vision of hell. She's come to remind us of one of the most important truths of our holy Catholic faith, a truth which is denied, ignored, or even laughed at in her apostate age. Laughed at and ignored, even by priests. Even by priests. Hell. Our Lady focuses our attention on eternity, the one thing that we should all be focused on, hell. All the warnings about famines, wars, persecutions, and annihilations of nations, as frightening as they are, pale in significance to this striking reminder of eternal damnation. We'll hear that description once more. Listen carefully. Sister Lucia, as Our Lady spoke these last words, she opened her hands once more as she had done during the two previous months. The rays of light seemed to penetrate the earth, and we saw, as it were, a sea of fire. Plunged in this fire were demons and souls in human form, like transparent burning embers, all blackened or burnished bronze, floating about in the conflagration now raised into the air by the flames that issued within themselves, along with great clouds of smoke, now falling back on every side like sparks and huge fires, without weight or equilibrium, amid the shrieks and groans of pain and despair which horrified us and made us tremble with fear. The demons could be distinguished by their terrifying and repellent likeness to frightful and unknown animals, black and transparent like burning coals. Terrified, and as if to plead for succor, we looked at Our Lady, who said to us so kindly and so sadly, You have seen hell, where the souls of poor sinners go. To save them, God wishes to establish the world devotion to an immaculate heart. If what I say to you is done, many souls will be saved, and there will be peace. Now, how many times have we heard some sophisticated person just dismiss the traditional descriptions of hell, wave it all off with some kind of condescending smile, suggesting no educated person can actually believe there's a fiery underground prison full of damned souls and demons. 
that these ideas are sort of medieval or childish fantasies for simple people. Or how many times have we heard these same sort of people? People like the immensely popular, best-selling author and preacher, Bishop Robert Barron, for example, suggest that hell is at best some sort of nondescript, featureless space somewhere, which we don't really know a lot about, but we can be sure it is virtually empty if it even exists at all. That the church has never, ever taught that anyone actually goes to hell. I'd bet good money I'm not the only one here tonight that's heard these kind of things. Just ask yourself, does the vision that Our Lady showed to the children sound anything even remotely like some empty, nondescript, featureless space somewhere? Or does it sound exactly like the terrifying descriptions of the inferno that we find in Scripture and tradition? We'll just take a brief look at Scripture and tradition. Scripture. Scripture is full of examples. We'll just quickly consider two from the New Testament. Apocalypse 21a. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Mark 9, 46 and 48, where our Lord himself explicitly states, it is better for thee with one eye to enter into the kingdom of God than having two eyes to be cast into hell of fire, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not extinguished. For everyone shall be salted with fire. That's the inspired, inerrant word of God. Let's briefly consider tradition. Are there really demons and damned souls in hell? The Catechism of the Council of Trent speaks of, quote, that most loathsome and dark prison in which the souls of the damned are commended with unclean spirits and eternal and inextinguishable fire. The place is called Gehenna, the bottom of split, and is hell, strictly so called, close quote. In our day, there are certain priests, men like, men like Hans Urs von Balthasar, Bishop Barron, who have dared to suggest that besides the demons, no one is hell, that we can actually dare to hope that all men are saved. But this idea that all men are saved is in itself a doctrine of the devil. In August 1458, Pope Pius II condemned the statement that, quote, all Christians are to be saved, close quote. That's condemned. It's condemned to say that all Christians are to be saved, which means that the contrary must be true. If all Christians are to be saved is false, then some Christians are not saved, which is to say some Christians are damned, must be true. We'll just cite one scripture along these same lines. Luke 13, 23 and 24, quote, And a certain man said to him, Lord, are they few that are saved? Are they few that are saved? But he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, shall seek to enter and shall not be able. Christ our Lord was asked if there were few that were saved. 
And the Lord answered. Jesus Christ answered. The second person of the most blessed trinity, God the Son, answered. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. For many shall seek to enter and shall not be able. Many shall seek to enter and shall not be able. Many shall seek to enter means that many, and they're not able, many will not be saved. We have God's word on it. There are definitely damned souls in hell, just as the children saw in the vision. Now that shouldn't really surprise us. It shouldn't really surprise us. As that great doctor of the church, St. John Chrysostom, points out, most Christians are walking on the road to hell throughout their life. Why should any be, anyone be surprised that the greater number go to hell? To arrive at a destination, we have to take the road that leads there. Now don't think for even a moment that only pertains to the faithful. St. John Chrysostom also said, quote, I do not speak rashly. I do not think that many priests are saved, but that those who perish are far more numerous. Speaking specifically of pastors, St. John of Avila, another doctor of the church, states, quote, So many and so great are the obligations of a pastor that he who fulfills only a third of them will be esteemed by men to be a saint. But if he only contents himself with that, he will not be able to escape Jehanna. Close quote. A priest was interviewing Sister Lucia and asked her, Do you really believe that many people go to hell? I myself hope that God will save the greater number. Sister Lucia, many are those who are lost. Father, certainly the world is a cesspool of vices, but there's also always hope of salvation. Sister, no father, many are lost. Sister Lucia, one day I went to Jacinta's house to spend a little time with her. I found her sitting on her bed, deep in thought. Jacinta, what are you thinking about? About the war that is coming. So many people are going to die. And almost all of them are going to hell. Blessed Jacinta is thinking about World War II. And she says, so many people are going to die, and almost all of them are going to hell. Now just stop and ask yourself, in the 70-some years since the war ended, has there been some kind of massive revival? Has society grown more holy? Are the people leading much more virtuous lives nowadays than they were back then? Are the priests leading more virtuous lives nowadays than they were back then? Many Christians are walking on the road to hell throughout their life. Why should we be surprised that the greater number go to hell? Not many priests are saved. Those who perish are far more numerous. And not only are there damned souls in hell, we even know the names of some of the people in hell. If you open your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 16, you could read about the schism of Kor, Dathan, and Abiram. Now these are priests that led in a rebellion against Moses and Aaron during the Exodus. 
And the Bible tells us, quote, The earth broke asunder under their feet and devoured them with their tents and all their substance. And they went down alive into hell, the ground closing upon them, and they perished from among the people. Close quote. The earth broke asunder under their feet and they went down alive into hell. Kor, Dathan, and Abiram went down alive into hell. Now, commenting on this passage, three doctors of the church, among others, St. Jerome, the Venerable Bede, and St. Robert Bellarmine, all teach explicitly that when Kor, Dathan, and Abiram fell down in, they fell into Gehenna, the place of the damned. And the common teaching of Scripture and the fathers, all the fathers, is that Judas is in hell. So there are definitely damned souls in hell. Plenty of them. And we definitely know the names of some of the people in hell. And anyone that claims otherwise has deposed himself to scripture, tradition, and clear papal teaching. We continue. What about the pains, the fire, the torments? The principal pain in hell is the pain of loss. It's the pain of having lost God. St. Thomas says that, that since the loss of God is uh, the loss of an infinite good, the pain of the damned is, in a certain sense, infinite. St. Anthony Mary Claret points out that, quote, when a soul enters hell, God sheds over it so vivid a light that it can know to the limits of its capacity the greatness of its infinite and divine essence. Because this knowledge is very clear in the damned soul, it presents very vividly to it the immense happiness and blessedness which it could have enjoyed in God. From this, bitterness comes, which is inconceivable. Inasmuch as every minute it is driven towards God with a burning desire, and it realizes also at every instant that it is cast off by the Lord. So the grief of a soul in hell is boundless due to its loss of God. Close quotes. So the damned in hell are folded in on themselves, so to speak. They're filled with anguish, hatred, pain, rage, and despair. And it's unending despair. There's no relief, ever. And there's no hope. No relief and no hope. And the damned in hell are tormented by the worm that dieth not. We heard our Lord mention that. What is that? That's the scriptural way, our Lord's way of talking about the realization of how easily they could have been saved. Tormented in the memory by the thought of the time that was given to them in this life, that they might use it to save their souls, and yet they spent it procuring their own damnation. By remembering all the graces they received and wasted by the fact that this loss is irreversible forever. Forever, and they'll never have anything they desire, and they'll be tortured forever, and they will never have any peace ever. There's no relief ever, and no hope. The damned also suffer the pain of sense. The greatest pain of sense is the pain inflicted by the fires of hell. The fire of hell is dark. St. Thomas teaches it'll only give enough light to increase the torments of the damned. So the damned will see the horrible deformities of the other damned souls and the terrible forms of the demons through the burning smoke and dark flames. St. Vincent Ferrer says, Our fire is cold compared to hellfire. St. Teresa Avila, who was taken to hell, said that the difference between painted fire and our fire is much less than the difference between our fire and hellfire. Hellfire tortures the sense of touch. 
the damned are totally immersed in fire. Fire below, fire above, fire to the sides. They're breathing fire. It penetrates everywhere and it never consumes. And then after Judgment Day, when the damned get their bodies back, those parts of the body that were especially used in sin are burnt all the more. Blasphemers, their tongue will burn the more. Thieves, the hands, and so forth. Fire will be spewing it out of their mouths, their eyes, the ears, and bodies. They'll be totally steeped in fire and wish to be annihilated, but still never consumed. There's no relief ever, and there's no hope. Sister Lucia, Jacinta often sat thoughtfully on the ground or on a rock and exclaimed, Oh, hell, hell, how sorry I am for the souls who go to hell and the people down there burning alive like wood in the fire. Then shuddering, she knelt down with her hands joined and recited the prayer our lady had taught us. Oh, my Jesus, pardon us, save us from the fire of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need. Jacinta remained on her knees like this for long periods of time, saying the same prayers over and over again. From time to time, she called out to her brother and myself, Francisco, Francisco, are you praying with me? We must pray very much. Save souls from hell. So many go there. So many. Or so many people in hell. So many. Jacinta wondered, those people burning in hell, don't they ever die? Don't they ever turn into ashes? After judgment, the, the damned will also suffer the pain of immobility. However, they land in hell on the last day after the judgment, they'll remain in that position with their bodies without moving for all eternity. There's no relief ever and no hope. They'll be tortured by unbearable hunger, by unquenchable thirst that not even ocean water could quench, and they'll never get a single drop. Ever. Their hearing will be tormented by the incessant shrieking, howling, cursing, blaspheming, the desperate wailing of the damned. The damned soul wails and shrieks because he's lost God and lost him for all eternity. St. Alphonsus says the damned soul will hate and curse God and all his gifts of nature and grace. He will curse being created, curse his partners in sin, curse being redeemed. If he had received the sacraments, he will curse being baptized, curse being confirmed. Cursed having confessed his sins, cursed having received Holy Communion. He will hate the angels and saints, especially his guardian angel and patron saints, and above all, Our Lady. But he will principally hate and curse the most blessed Trinity, most especially the second person who became man and died for him. He will curse our Lord's wounds, his precious blood, his pains and death. Now some damn fools jock about going to hell because that's where their friends will be. I've heard it myself with my own ears. Guys joking about that. No one has any friends in hell. St. Thomas teaches the greater number of the damned in hell, the greater the misery of each one. No one has any friends in hell. The damned are all folded in on themselves, filled with anguish, hatred, pain, rage, and despair, and it's unending despair. But eternity, eternity is the most terrifying aspect of hell. Sister Lucia, what made the biggest impression on Jacinta was the idea of eternity. Even in the middle of a game, she would stop and ask, but listen, doesn't hell end after many, many years then? Don't those people ever die in hell? Don't they ever turn into ashes? Eternity is the terror above all terrors. 
Just picture walking back and forth from the Rocky Mountains to the Atlantic Ocean, carrying a teaspoonful of dirt or rock every day, one in, or every, every time, one teaspoonful, dumping it in the Atlantic Ocean, walking back and forth, back and forth. By the time you had completely leveled the Rocky Mountains to the ground, thrown all that dirt and rock of an immense mountain range completely into the Atlantic Ocean, an eternity in hell wouldn't be half over. It wouldn't be half over. It wouldn't be a hundredth over. It wouldn't be a thousandth over. Eternity in hell wouldn't even got started yet. Eternity is the terror of all terrors. In hell there's an entrance, but there is no exit. Someone might object that perhaps we're overemphasizing the importance of this aspect of the message of Fatima. To answer that objection, all we have to do is consider a few of the comments of Lucia and Blessed Jacinta. Consider this line from a letter Sister Lucia wrote to a young seminarian. Quote, Do not be surprised that I speak to you so much about hell. This is one truth that is necessary to recall often in these days, because we forget that souls are falling into hell in droves. Close quote. Hell is one truth it's necessary to recall often in these times because we forget that souls are falling to hell in droves. Well, these excerpts from Sister Lucia's writings, certain people, even pious people, did not like to speak of hell to the children so as not to frighten them. But God did not hesitate to show it to the three children, one of whom was only six, and he knew quite well that she would be horrified to the point of being consumed with fright. I would go so far as to say, one thing that sanctified these children was to see the vision of hell. Jacinta was most deeply impressed by the vision of hell and the ruin of the many souls who go there and the future war with all its horrors, which seemed to be always present in her mind. When I started deep in thought and asked her, Jacinta, what are you thinking about? She frequently cried. About the war which is coming, all the people are going to die and go to hell. How dreadful. If only they would stop offending God, then there wouldn't be any war and they wouldn't go to hell. When I went to visit her during her illness, sometimes she would suddenly grab my arm and say, I'm going to heaven. But since you are staying here, if our lady lets you, tell all these people what hell's like so they don't commit any more sins and they don't go there. Jacinta told Canon Formigo when she was dying in Lisbon that our lady revealed to her that the sins which lead the most people to hell are sins of the flesh. The people must give up luxury and impurity. They must not remain obstinate in sin. They must do penance. Fashions that will greatly offend our Lord will appear. People who follow God should not follow fashions. The church has no fashions. Our Lord was always the same. Jacinta often sat thoughtfully on the ground of rock and exclaimed, Oh, hell, hell, how sorry I am for the people who go there, burning alive like wood in the fire. She remained on her knees for long periods of time, praying the same prayers over and over. The vision of hell filled her with such horror to such a degree that every penance and mortification was as nothing in her eyes, if only it could protect threatened souls from going there. Finally, in her last public interview, Sister Lucia told a priest, quote, My mission is not to announce to the world the material chastisements which will surely come if the world does not pray or do penance. No. My mission is to indicate to everyone the eminent danger we are of losing our souls forever if we remain obstinate in sin. My mission is to indicate to everyone the imminent danger we are of losing our souls forever 
to remain obstinate in sin. So it's obvious the reality of hell plays a central role in the message of Fatima. And it's pretty easy to see why focusing our attention on this right now is so important in our day and age. Since one of the most remarkable aspects of our time has been the extraordinary loss of any sense of sin. As Pope Pius XII stated in 1946, quote, the sin of the century is the loss of the sense of sin. Close quote. The sin of the century is the loss of the sense of sin. Three years later, the Pope stated, quote, We are overwhelmed with sadness and anguish, seeing that the wickedness of perverse men has reached a degree of impiety that is unbelievable and absolutely unknown in other times. Close quote. More than 60 years ago, the Holy Father warned us that mankind has lost the sense of sin, has now reached a degree of wickedness never before seen. If that was the 40s, then what about now? What about now? As one preacher wisely noted, if God doesn't pass a judgment on America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Once we recognize this general loss of the sense of sin, an absolute tidal wave of wickedness accompanying it, the prophetic significance of this terrifying warning becomes clear. In an age absolutely drenched in wickedness, an age in which the population seems to have lost the sense of sin, an age in which the people have forgotten or even joke about the reality of eternal damnation, an age when, in which people even sing music about being on the highway to hell and priests deny that anyone goes there, or lay yourself comes down from heaven to warn us of the terrifying eternal consequences of sin about the reality of hell. The loss of the sense of sin is the sense of the sin of the century. Let's make sure that can't be said about us. Now before we consider sin directly, which we're going to do, we're going to pause for a minute and actually take a close look at what is perhaps the most single dangerous state of a soul for a man to fall into. And it may surprise you, but it's called lukewarmness. Lukewarmness is the state of soul of a practicing Catholic. It can be. And certainly in the early stages of this condition, he may very well be in the state of grace. What happens to the lukewarm man that everything that has to do with holiness gradually gets reduced to doing things instead of loving someone. The result as a lukewarm man becomes preoccupied with his own interests and comfort, he gradually slides into a more, more and more sloppy approach to things which pertain to the Lord. St. Thomas defines lukewarmness as a kind of sadness which makes a person sluggish in the performance of spiritual exercises on account of the effort they require. The great spiritual writer, Father Garrigou Lagrange, summarized the church teaching as the causes of this problem. I quote, As a rule, the two principal causes of the condition of lukewarmness are the neglect of little things in the service of God and the refusal to make the sacrifices he asks of us. The neglect of little things in the service of God and the refusal to make the sacrifice he asks of us. Speaking from my own experience as a priest, these souls seem almost impervious to correction. When you're talking to a real sinner, sometimes they get right in your face, and sometimes they really take things to heart. But you do get a reaction. You're going to get a reaction. 
Sometimes it gets a little Western, but you're going to get a reaction, okay? It may be a struggle some, when these people respond. And sometimes there may be a lot of ups and downs, but you do see some real sinners coming to the Lord. But with a lukewarm soul, it's a totally different ball game. They turn things into a little joke. They joke about things, they squirm and dodge. They refuse to take any spiritual correction seriously. They push back or ignore any call to turn to the Lord. And they have 40 million lame excuses why this or that doesn't really pertain to them. Little jokes and lots of excuses. They just won't take their spiritual duties seriously. Even though deep down inside, they actually know they're wrong. You just can't get through to them. You just can't. All you get is little jokes, lame excuses. And if they don't snap out of that state, they're going to take a terrifying fall. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. The case of priests is especially terrifying. And it's all summed up in the old saying, when a priest falls, he falls like Satan never to rise again. And I've seen it. I've seen it. It's easy to understand that terrifying warning of our Lord found in chapter 3 of the Apocalypse, and I quote from the Word of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would that thou art cold or hot, but because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will begin to vomit thee out of my mouth. Close quote. Inspired inerrant word of God. All right. That's lukewarmness. But now let's spend a few minutes reviewing the church's teaching on sin. We'll start by considering venial sin. We all know what venial sin is. We learned in our catechism that venial sin is a less serious offense against the law of God, which does not deprive the soul of sanctifying grace, which can be pardoned even without sacramental confession. We all know that, of course. But there are certain aspects of venial sin which even pious Catholics often seem to overlook. Some 90 years ago, Bishop John Vaughn summarized the teaching of the church, and I quote, If for the moment we put mortal sin altogether out of our calculation, we may affirm without hesitation, without the slightest exaggeration, that there is literally no evil whatsoever as great as venial sin. The Catholic Church teaches that, number one, every venial sin is offense against God. Number two, that no circumstance or motive whatsoever can ever justify a person in committing it. Number three, that a man is bound to embrace any other alternative, however painful and however difficult and distressing, rather than incur the guilt of venial sin. And number four, it is in all cases an insult offered by a contemptible nothing to the infinite majesty of God. The great blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman comments on the same truths. Cardinal Newman, the church holds that it were better for sun and moon to drop from heaven for the earth to fail, and for all the many millions who are on it to die of starvation and extremist agony as far as temporal affliction goes, then one soul, I shall not say be lost, but should commit one single venial sin. 
Now, to the very degree that sounds shocking to someone, it shows how true Pius XII's statement is, that we're losing our sense of sin. Father Rogacci, S.J., states the same truth in yet another way. A venial sin may indeed appear slight, but it is an offense against God. And this is enough to cause it to be regarded by one who has a right conception of that infinite being with greater horror than that with which he would witness the utter destruction and instant return to its original nothingness of this vast machine of the universe with all the creatures it contains, such as the heavens, the stars, elements, and men and angels. Again, to the very degree that may sound shocking to anyone is the very degree that he needs to consider whether he has a proper sense of sin. And we're simply talking venial sin here. Do you think that nowadays the average pious Catholic sees this truth, the true evil of venial sin, clearly? I don't. Is there a loss of the sense of sin or what? But from the point of view of our own salvation, there's yet another horror associated with venial sin. And that's, it is that habits of venial sin weaken our power to resist mortal sin. For anyone serious about his salvation, this is essential to understand. So how does it work? Here it is in a nutshell. If we don't strive, and I mean strive manfully, to avoid deliberate venial sins, but instead we indulge ourselves regularly in our own venial sinful desires, then we have trained our will. We have trained our will. And how have we trained it? We've trained it to yield in the face of temptation. And once we have a weak, flabby will like that, then when we're hit with a strong temptation, we're going to fall. The point is that venial sin matters. If we want to be saved, we can't afford to be casual about it. No one becomes wicked all at once. It's only the man who begins to give way in little things and allows himself certain unlawful liberties, who over the time starts sinking into worse things, then deadly sins. He wrecks his whole life and purchases for himself eternal damnation. No one becomes wicked all at once. It's a process, not a single act. It's a process. They put themselves on the road. They don't get off. Okay, so we've seen the sin of the centuries, lost the sense of sin. We've taken a closer look at venial sin. Now let's consider mortal sin. What is mortal sin? The Catechism tells us that mortal sin is a grievous offense against the law of God. A single mortal sin deprives the, the, the soul of sanctifying grace. That's the supernatural life of the soul, which makes it possible for us to get to heaven when we die and to live there once we got there. We may have summer school, you know, and be saved through fire. That's purgatory. You didn't flunk, but you, you got some work to do before you get there. So you're saved as through fire, St. Paul says, okay? So a single mortal sin deprives the soul of sanctifying grace, which is the supernatural life of the soul, and it makes the soul an enemy of God takes away the merit of all its good actions, deprives it of its right to everlasting life and happiness in heaven, and makes it deserving of everlasting punishment in hell. Remember, there are three things necessary to make a sin mortal. First, the thought, desire, word, action, or emission must be seriously wrong or considered to be seriously wrong when it's committed. Looking at porn, uh, deliberately getting drunk, contraception, refusing to forgive an enemy, missing Mass on Sunday or Holy Day obligation. Second, the sinner must be mindful of the serious wrong. He needs to actually know it's seriously wrong. Third, the sinner must fully consent to it. He wills it. He chooses to do it. 
If you're asleep, you can't confess. If you're sound asleep and you confess hidden, you know, shoot nuclear missiles somewhere, that's a horrible thing, but you don't have, you know, your will's involved at all when our dreams are crazy. Again, the three things necessary to make a sin mortal are serious matter, sufficient reflection, and a full consent of the will. The three things necessary to commit a mortal sin are serious matter, serious matter, sufficient reflection, sufficient reflection, and full consent of the will. What does the man do who commits a mortal sin? He turns his back completely at God and chooses instead to run towards some creature. In point of fact, the sinner says to God, get away from me. I won't serve you. I will not obey you. I will not acknowledge you as my Lord. I will not have you for my God. This sinful pleasure, that worldly advantage, this gratification of my revenge, that refusal to forgive, that is going to be my God. St. Anthony Mary Claret comments, The moment one sins mortally, his soul from being a daughter of God becomes a slave of the devil. The condition of a possessed person moves us to compassion, for he's compelled to make room day and night within his body for a demon from hell. But much more pitiful is the condition of one's soul who by sin becomes a slave of the devil and lives under his tyrannical power. Someone possessed may be in the state of grace, which means if he dies, he'll ultimately go to heaven. But one in sin is God's enemy. He's without his grace and is liable to fall in hell at any time with the same demonic slave master accompanying him to torment him there forever. Close quote. May the good Lord preserve us all from ever falling into any mortal sin whatsoever. For anyone who may have ever had the great misfortune to fall into mortal sin, St. Anthony Mary Claire has some thoughts worth pondering. I quote, If today God delivered a damned soul from hell and gave it time to do penance, and in spite of its incredible favor, blaspheme again tomorrow, what would you think? Perhaps God has delivered you from hell. Ten, twenty, perhaps more times. And after having such extraordinary mercy toward you, what have you done? Your creature walls all himself to God. Indeed, for all there is in you, you're indebted to your Creator. He it is who gave it to you and preserves it for you. What impiety to abuse the benefits and graces received from God and use them in a way that is bold and outrageous towards His infinite majesty? Would it not be a monstrous thing if someone whose paralyzed hand Jesus Christ had miraculously cured were to use that same hand later to give Christ a beating? Would it not be a monstrous thing if someone whose paralyzed hand, Jesus Christ, had miraculously cured, would use that same hand later to give Christ a beating? Would it not be a great example of unworthiness if someone who had been miraculously cured of muteness by Jesus Christ were to break out later into blasphemies against him on the cross? We should each turn our eyes to ourselves. Who gave you that tongue? Those eyes, those tongue, those ears, those hands and all other members of your body and powers of your soul, which you've used so often to offend God. Is that how you've paid him back for such great favors? If, may our Lady of Fatima protect us, anyone has had the great misfortune, never fallen to mortal sin, he should run to confession. 
But precisely because mortal sin is the problem, the one problem that can land us in the fires of hell, before we set this unpleasant topic aside, we want to make sure that we all have a very clear understanding of another very important point, that unfortunately, many priests in our day and age don't seem to understand. St. Alphonsus, the great doctor of moral theology, explains there are four possible conditions of a soul following mortal sin. There are four possible conditions of a soul following mortal sin. The first possible condition is a reprobate sense. A reprobate sense occurs when someone, by God's just decree, has had so much of his wisdom withdrawn as a punishment for having abused it that he no longer seriously or intelligently cares about his salvation. Again, a reprobate sense occurs when someone, by God's just decree, has had so much of his wisdom withdrawn as a punishment for having abused it that he no longer seriously or intelligently cares about his salvation. Go down to a rough bar on Saturday night and ask them about their salvation. Ha, 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 I'll just go to hell where all my friends are. I've heard it with my own ears more than once. I bet I'm not the only one here. St. Alphonsus considers the final repentance and salvation of such souls normally quite improbable. One should pray for them and give them a good example. As there are degrees of, this, degrees of this state, it's not definitive. I know people that by miracle of grace have come back from the state. We keep entrusting them to Our Lady. Give them a good example and trust them to Our Lady. That's the reprobate sense. The second possible condition of a soul after mortal sin is defective contrition. According to St. Alphonsus, defective contrition is very, very common. Defective contrition occurs when the sinner feels some regret for his sins, perhaps even cry over them, but he remains unwilling to put God first in his life. And the key is he lacks a firm purpose of amendment. For example, a man with defective contrition may very well go to confession, but he won't return his stolen goods. He won't start paying back overdue debts, which he's able to pay. He won't stop living with a concubine or keeping company with a sinful companion. He won't abandon a drug or alcohol habit. He won't forgive an enemy. He won't stop using contraception. He won't put a filter on his computer. He won't stop watching evil TV shows or movies, etc., etc., etc. Now, as long as a man is in the state of defective contrition, even if he were to go to confession, since a man with defective contrition is not serious about, about avoiding sin and the near occasion of sin, his act of contrition isn't true. It'd be a lie. God sees that, even if the priest doesn't. Because he's promised, and we all know that. I got to go to confession just like everybody else. We all have to kneel down before a priest and go to confession. We have to promise to avoid sin, the near occasion of sin. We have to promise to mend our life. And those are just words. We're talking to God. That's a courtroom situation. When you're going to confession, when I'm going to confession, I'm the prosecuting attorney against myself. I'm the prosecuting attorney and the defendant. And then before the priest who's sitting in the place of God as a judge, I'm telling him I'm coming clean with him. And then I'm promising I'm going to reform my life. That's what's required for that absolution to be valid. Otherwise, I'm lying. And who am I lying to? Not a good plan. Even if a priest were to pronounce words of absolution over a man with defective contrition, one time, ten times, a hundred times, each and every time, that absolution is just going to ricochet right off of there. 
Why? Because it's impossible to have sins forgiven without true contrition. We can't keep our one foot in the, in the camp of the devil and one foot in the camp of the Lord. We're all in one side or the other. There's no in-between. It's impossible to forgive sins without true contrition. If a man with defective contrition tries to confess, and even if the priest says it, where's the absolution? No sins are forgiven. Not one. The confession is bad. The absolution is invalid. And not only does the man remain in his sins, now he's added the sin of a sacrilegious confession to the tally. The basic problem here is a man wants to get right with the Lord, but still keep partying with the devil. We have it on the highest authority that no man can serve two masters. And that's the problem with defective contrition. Now, sinners with defective contrition can often be helped by a good confessor or a devout friend to take the necessary steps which will make it possible for him to validly receive absolution. That's defective contrition. Obviously, it's completely impossible for sinners with a reprobate sense with effective contrition to make good confessions and be reconciled with God until their state of soul changes. Indeed, we all can and should do something for these poor creatures who are hurtling towards damnation. What can we do? In August of 1917, the children were kidnapped and imprisoned, so they couldn't meet Our Lady on the 13th. On the 19th of August, after they had been released, she appeared to them in a place close to their homes and told them, quote, I want you to continue to go to the COVID area on the 13th and to continue praying the rosary every day. In the last month, I performed a miracle so that all may believe. If you had not been taken away to the city, that's when they were thrown into jail, the miracle would have been even greater. St. Joseph will come with the child Jesus to give peace to the world. Our Lord will come to bless the people. Our Lady of the Rosary and Our Lady of Sorrows will also come. Then looking very sad, Our Lady said, pray. Pray very much and make sacrifices for sinners. For many souls go to hell because there are none to sacrifice themselves and pray for them. And she began to ascend as usual towards the east. Close quote, Sister Lucia. Looking very sad, Our Lady said, Pray, pray very much and make sacrifice for sinners. For many souls go to hell because there are none to sacrifice themselves and pray for them. In that regard, we'll read an excerpt from a letter written by yet another doctor of the church, the little flower, St. Therese of the Child Jesus. She's writing to her sister, Celine. I'd like to invite everyone here to make these thoughts his own. St. Therese of the Child Jesus, quote, Celine, during the short moments that remain to us, let us not lose our time. Let us save souls. Souls are being lost like flakes of snow. And Jesus weeps. Oh, Celine, let us live for souls. Let us be apostles. Let us save especially the souls of priests. These souls should be more transparent than crystal. Alas, how many bad priests. Priests who are not holy enough. Let us pray. Let us suffer for them. And on the last day, Jesus will be grateful. We should give him souls. So what can we do for these poor creatures that are hurling towards hell? We can pray. Pray very much and make sacrifices for them. Many souls go to hell. 
because there's none to sacrifice themselves and pray for them. During the short moments that remain to us, let us not lose our time. Let us save souls. Souls are being lost like flakes of snow and Jesus weeps. Let us live for souls. Let us be apostles. Let us save especially the souls of priests. These souls should be more transparent than crystal. How many bad priests? Priests that are not holy enough. Let us pray and suffer for them. And on the last day, Jesus will be grateful. We shall give him souls. The third possible condition of a soul after mortal sin is imperfect contrition. Contrition is called imperfect when the sinner indeed has the first beginning, the first spark of the love of God, which St. Aphonsus points out is clear it's present if the sinner has a firm purpose of amendment. But he's moved by less perfect motive than God's lovableness, such as from considering the ugliness of sin, the fact that he deserves hell, or that he lost heaven in punishment for what he's done. Imperfect contrition does not make someone guilty of mortal sin to win pardon until the moment he makes a good confession. So that's imperfect contrition. He can be absolved. He has the firm purpose of amendment. He broke that whiskey bottle and threw it away. He packed up and moved out. The fourth possible condition of a soul after mortal sin is perfect contrition. Contrition is called perfect when the sinner is moved by considering God's goodness and lovableness. And when these figures the stronger motives of repentance, although he may still be moved strongly but secondarily by fear of hell, because that's a very good motive. Perfect contrition is regret for sin on account of the wrong that we've done to God. Love predominates in perfect condition, and as a result, it wins God's pardon as soon as the soul arrives at it. We realize what he's done for us and how we've returned the favor. Perfect contrition wins God's pardon as soon as the soul arrives at it, assuming that the sinner includes in his will the, the, the desire to fulfill all that God asks for him. And for all properly catechized Catholics, that includes intention to make a good confession. So that's perfect contrition. So what have we seen? We've seen after committing a mortal sin, there are four possible states of soul. One, the reprobate sense, when the sinner is a punishment for sin, no longer seriously or intelligently cares about his salvation. Two, defective contrition. The sinner has some regret for sin, but he lacks a firm purpose of amendment. Three, imperfect contrition. When the sinner has a firm purpose of amendment, but is moved by less perfect motives than the love of God, for example, the fear of hell. And four, perfect contrition. The sinner is moved for regret for sin on account of the wrong done for God, who is infinitely good and worthy of all his love. We've seen that it's completely impossible for sinners with the reprobate sense or with defective contrition to make good confessions and be reconciled with God. We've seen in order to make a good confession be reconciled with God, in order to be validly absolved, a sinner must either have imperfect or perfect contrition. Now there's one last terrifying aspect of mortal sin that each one of us should ponder in his heart. While commenting on the words of sacred scripture found in the book of wisdom, chapter 11 and verse 21, thou hast ordered all things in measure, in number and weight. Thou hast ordered all things in measure, number, and weight. Among other saints, these great doctors of the church, St. Basil the Great, St. Jerome, St. Ambrose, St. Cyril of Alexandria, St. John Chrysostom, 
St. Augustine, and St. Alphonsus, each one of them teach that just as God has fixed for a man the number of his days, the degrees of health and talent which he will give to him, so also God has determined the number of mortal sins he'll pardon that man. When that number is completed, he'll pardon no more. Just as God has fixed for each man the number of his days, the degrees of health and talent which he will give to him, so also God has determined the number of mortal sins he'll pardon that man. And when that number is completed, he'll pardon no more. We'll follow St. Alphonsus here who says, quote, You must then tremble at the thought of committing a single mortal sin, particularly if you've already been guilty of mortal sins. Who can discover the number of mortal sins that God will pardon each individual? We should therefore tremble, my brother, it may be that God will pardon you no more after the first criminal pleasure which you indulge, after the first thought which you consent, after the first mortal sin you commit. Some sinners say, but God is merciful. Who, I ask, denies that? The mercy of God is infinite. But although his mercy is infinite, how many are cast in hell every day? God heals those who have a good will. He pardons mortal sins, but he cannot pardon the determination to commit sin. These sinners will also say, I'm young. You are young, but God counts not years, but sins. The number of mortal sins which God pardons is not the same for all. Some he pardons a hundred, others a thousand. Some he sends to hell after the second sin. How many is the Lord condemned to eternal misery after the first mortal sin? St. Gregory the Great, doctor of the church, relates that a child, having attained the use of reason, was condemned to hell for blasphemy. The Most Holy Virgin revealed to that great servant of God, Benedict of Florence, that a girl 12 years old was damned after first mortal sin. A boy of eight years died after his first mortal sin was lost. The obstinate sinner may say, but I have so often offended God and he's pardoned me. I hope they'd also pardon me the mortal sin I intend to commit. But I ask, must God spare you forever because he's not yet chastised you? The measure shall be filled up and vengeance shall come. From this day forward, be careful to ask pardon for your past transgressions. The more you've offended God, the more you should tremble at the thought of offending him again. For the next mortal sin you commit may make the balance of divine justice descend, and you'd be lost. Hence, when you're tempted, say within yourself, perhaps God will pardon me no more, and I shall be lost. Tell me, were it probable that if certain food contained poison, would you eat it? Would you have reason to think that on a certain road your enemies lay in wait to take away your life? Would you travel that way if you could find another route, more free from danger? What guarantee do you have that if you fall back into mortal sin, you will afterward sincerely repent of it? What assurance do you have that God will not strike you dead in the very act of mortal sin or immediately afterwards? How does it happen that for a miserable gratification you lose your soul, heaven, and God? Do you believe that heaven, hell, and eternity are truths of the faith? Or are they fables? Do you believe that if you die in mortal sin, you'll be lost forever? What foolishness to condemn yourself by your own free act to an eternity of torments with the hope of afterwards reversing the sentence of your condemnation. No one would be found so foolish as to take poison with the hope of being preserved from death. Will you then condemn yourself to eternal death in hell, saying you expect later on to be preserved from it? What folly which is brought and brings so many souls to hell. God waits with patience until a certain number of mortal sins is committed. When the measure of guilt is filled up, he waits no longer and chastises the sinner. 
Sinners multiply their mortal sins without keeping any count of them, but God numbers them. So when the harvest is ripe, that is when the number of mortal sins is completed, he may take vengeance on them. St. Gregory the Great says, he was promised pardon to penitence, has not promised tomorrow to sinners. He was promised pardon to penitence, has not promised tomorrow to sinners. We'll close with a detailed examination of conscience. Preliminary considerations. Have I ever failed deliberately to confess a mortal sin? Or have I deliberately disguised or hidden such a sin in confession? Have I been guilty in carelessness in examining my conscience? Have I failed to do the penance given to me by the priest? If I have mortally sinful habits, such as drunkenness or impurity, have I failed to point that out in confession? The first commandment. On the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Have I neglected inquiring the knowledge of the faith commensurate with my state in life? Have I deliberately doubted or denied any teachings of the church? Have I taken an active part in non-Catholic worship? Have I listened to heretical preachers in person on the radio or on television? Have I supported or joined any non-Catholic religious organization, secret society lodge, or anti-Catholic group? Have I knowingly read any heretical, blasphemous, or anti-Catholic literature? Have I engaged in any superstitious practices, such as horoscopes, palm reading, fortune tellers, consulting a psychic, playing with Ouija boards, engaged in any Wiccan or other pagan rites, read or kept or lent books dealing with the same? Have I admitted any religious duties or practices from motives of human respect? Have I recommended myself daily to God, made faithful to my daily prayers? Have I received any sacraments, sacraments sacrilegiously or irreverently? Have I thought, act, or spoken irreverently of God, the Blessed Virgin, the saints, the church, the sacraments, or any other holy things? Have I been guilty of serious irreverence in church, whether by conversation, behavior, or dress? Have I been guilty of indifference, believing that all religions are equivalent or that one can be saved in any religion? Have I presumed on God's mercy? Have I despaired of God's mercy? Have I hated God? Have I valued the opinions of men or any of the creature, activity, or object above the honor due to God? The second commandment, thou shalt not take the Lord, name of the Lord thy God in vain. Have I taken an oath in God's name falsely, rashly, or in trivial matters? Have I blasphemed or murmured or complained against God? Have I cursed myself or any other creature? Have I so angered others as to provoke them to swear or blaspheme God? Have I broken a vow or a promise to God? Have I watched movies or television where blasphemy is used? The third commandment, remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. Have I missed Mass on Sundays or holy days of obligation through my own fault? Have I been late to Mass on Sundays or holy days of obligation or have I left early through my own fault? Have I made others miss Mass, be late or leave early on Sundays or holy days of obligation? Have I been willfully distracted during Mass? Have I done or commanded to be done any unnecessary servile work on Sundays or holy days of obligation? Have I gone shopping, bought or sold things on Sundays or holy days of obligation? The fourth commandment, offer honor thy father and thy mother. Have I been disobedient to my parents in serious matters, keeping bad company, reading bad books, frequenting bad places? Have I been disrespectful to my parents, despised or even hated them, wished their death or that some other misfortune would befall them? Have I insulted my parents, mocked them, ridiculed them, cursed them, threatened them, lift up my head and to strike them? Have I neglected or refused to aid my parents in their needs? 
Have I been ashamed of my parents? Have I sorely grieved them by ungrateful attitudes or bad behavior? Have I neglected to pray for them? If they've died, have I neglected to pray for them or have masses offered for them or to faithfully execute their last will and testament? Have I shown irreverence to others in positions of authority? Have I voted for anyone that I knew certainly was unfit for office? Have I resisted the lawful requests of lawful authority? Have I been disrespectful or disobedient to legitimate commands of my spiritual superiors or behaved towards them in an arrogant or insulting manner? The fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Have I procured, desired, or hastened the death or bodily injury of anyone? Have I borne hatred? Have I oppressed anyone? Have I desired revenge? Have I caused enmity between others? Have I quarreled or fought with anyone? Have I, through revenge, passion, or avarice, engaged in unjust lawsuits? Have I wished evil on anyone? Have I intended or, uh, or attempted to injure or mistreat others? Have I put a curse, a spell, or hex on anyone or hired anybody to do so? Have I taken pleasure in others' misfortunes? Have I jealous or envious of anyone? Have I had or attempted to have an abortion or counseled or assisted anyone to do so? Have I mutilated my body in any unnecessary way? Have I entertained deliberately thoughts of suicide, desire to commit suicide, or attempted suicide? Have I become drunk or gotten high on drugs? Have I seriously neglected to take proper care of my bodily health? Have I harmed anyone's soul, especially children, by giving bad example? Have I tried to dissuade or discourage anyone who is willing to repent and reform? Have I harmed my own soul by intentionally unnecessarily exposing myself to temptations and near occasions of sin, such as bad company, bad books, bad movies, bad TV, bad music, bad beaches, bad clubs, etc.? Sixth and ninth commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Have I denied my spouse his or her marital rights? Have I practiced contraception in any way? Have I been sterilized or had my spouse sterilized? Have I abused my marital rights in other ways? Have I kept company with someone else's spouse? Have I engaged in passionate kissing with someone to whom I am not married? Have I touched or embraced another impurely? Have I committed an impure act by myself or with another? Have I deliberately entertained impure thoughts? Have I used impure suggestive words, told impure stories, or listened to them? Have I deliberately looked at impure things, TVs, movies, DVDs, pictures, websites, listened to impure thongs, or deliberately read impure material? Have I been the occasion of sin for others by my actions, postures, or by wearing tight or revealing and immodest clothing? Have I boasted of my sins or taken delight in past sins? Have I been in lewd company or unnecessarily remained alone in the company of someone of the opposite sex? On the way out, in regards to these kind of things, there's a nice little handout called A Few Notes Regarding Purity. Everybody should have this. Hopefully you're not struggling, but you're going to know people that are. It's a good little one with practices. You'll be good to go follow that. If anybody, there's also a handout on filters. So it's got for routers, filters for different, uh, including uh, iPad or you know, tablets and cell phones and so forth, and accountability work. This is up to date as of last week. Everybody should have stuff filtered. The woman of the house, as it says on this, should have the password. And then there's one, prayers of healing. So everybody should take uh, one of those on the way out. It's really important to have that stuff or to be able to pass it on because there's so many people struggling, especially with issues of the sixth and ninth commandment. And it can be won. This is a battle that can be won. These are not the most serious. The commandments are roughly in order. Okay. Seventh and tenth commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Have I stolen anything? What or how much? Is it still in my possession? Have I damaged or destroyed another's property? 
have negligently, negligently spoiled anyone's property, have been negligent in the stewardship of other people's money or goods, have I cheated or defrauded others, have I failed to make restitution for stealing, cheating, or fraud, have I gambled excessively with money that wasn't mine to gamble, have I taken bribes, have I refused or neglected to pay any debts, have I acquired anything I knew to be stolen, have I failed to return borrowed goods, have I cheated my employer of an honest stage work? Have I cheated my employees of their wages? Have I taken advantage of the simple, the young, or inexperienced, or made hard bargains with the poor or those in distress? Have I refused or neglected to help anyone in serious need? Have I been envious of another's goods? Have I been stingy with my goods? Have I let my livestock range on my neighbor's property? Have I caused any injury or loss by negligence or culpable ignorance in the discharge of my profession or employment? Have I been grasping and avaricious, placing too much importance on things of the world and material comforts? Eighth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Have I lied about anyone? Have my lies damaged their reputation or caused them any other material or spiritual harm? Have I injured the good name of another by revealing true but hidden faults or sins or done anything else to blacken his name? Have I watched television or listened to radio shows where detraction is indulged in? Have I made restitution by restoring the good name of my neighbor injured by my detraction? Have I corrected my lies? Have I rashly judged anyone? That is to say, have I believed firmly without sufficient evidence that they're guilty of some moral defect or crime? Have I been guilty of tailbearing? That is to say, have I reported something unfavorably said of someone by another so as to create or sustain enmity between them? Have I lent an ear to encourage the spreading of scandal about my neighbor? Have I taken false oaths or signed false documents or advised others to do so? Am I without necessity critical, negative, or uncharitable in my speech? Have I flattered others? Particular duties of the state of life. Parents, have you ever, always taken proper care of the life and health of your children? Have you deserted them? Have you endeavored to teach them the Catholic faith, both by word and example? Have you ensured that the holy faith had priority to place in your home? Did you ensure that they learned a trade or profession so they can make an honest livelihood when they leave home? Have you showed an unjust preference for one to the prejudice of the others? Have you been cruel or unkind to them? Have you hindered them from following their vocation to priesthood or religious life? Have you without reasonable cause opposed their inclinations with regards to marriage? Have you exposed the innocents to danger by access to improper movies, television, or to an unfiltered internet by allowing them to read trashy novels or dangerous books? Have you permitted them to wear immodest clothing? Have you allowed them to keep company with bad companions, allowed them to date and go steady with members of the opposite sex without prospect of marriage within the near future? Have you allowed them to attain morally dangerous schools or to stay out late at night? Have you failed to correct them when they needed or have you been abusive and heavy-handed in your corrections? Have you, without serious grounds, undermined the legitimate authority of the other parent by granting permissions, lifting restrictions, or changing behavioral rules? The married. Did you enter the married state from base and unchristian motives? Have you been the cause of grief and heartache to your spouse by your conduct? Have you sinned against each other by abusive language or even blows? Have you, without just cause and lawful permission, abandoned your spouse, lived separately, or remained long absent? Have you abused your marital rights in any way? We'll now expose the Blessed Sacrament. Then I'll hear confessions as long as anybody needs them. 